you're in Mark chapter 10. All right? So, to break down the, uh, the big picture of Mark, because we're more than halfway through it, there's 16 chapters in it, we're in 10 tonight. The whole point of the Gospel of Mark is Mark, this Jewish guy who lived in the first century, writing what he saw about Jesus. And he starts with this big thing, this big statement at the beginning where he says, Jesus is the Messiah. And what he means by that is that all throughout the Old Testament, throughout the history of Israel, it's, it's kind of played like a tragedy as you've read through the Old Testament, but there's all these hints God keeps dropping that someday God is going to somehow come and make things right between himself and his people. And the Jewish people... Um, saw that that pointed to a particular person that God would send. And then Mark knows all this. He's got that Jewish background. And he's alive and he sees Jesus and sees all this stuff happening. And so he decides, I have to absolutely write this down. And you know that compared to the other Gospels, Mark reads like sort of like an on-the-scene news reporter where a lot of what he says is really short. A lot of the Gospels will have more detail and, and a lot more um, added stuff to the events, but Mark just tells you like it is, like somebody who saw it and wants to just get the word out as soon as possible because he thinks it's hugely important. And so Mark kind of has two sections. The first section, which we've already been through, is about how Jesus is the Messiah, how he fulfills all these prophecies, these predictions about who the Messiah would be in the Old Testament. And then at this halfway point that we did last week, Jesus kind of stops all the action and pulls his disciples aside and really says, I'm the Messiah, but I'm not, I'm not the kind of Messiah you think I'm going to be. And he tells them that the whole reason he came wasn't to rule or set up a government or be in political power. The reason he came was to die. And they don't really understand that. They don't understand why a leader appointed by God would want to die. But, but you and I know it on the other end that Jesus came to die to pay the price for our sins. And so as we go through this, Jesus is still in the midst of all this conflict with the religious leaders at the time. And we're going to see some of that right at the beginning. And he's also trying to reteach his disciples what it means to follow God. So Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. We're going to just read the, the first section of this. We're going to go through the first 31 verses. And what we'll do is we'll read them all in, in one big go, and then we'll back up to the beginning of it and kind of walk through them bit by bit. So here we go. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. He, that's Jesus, set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, and as was his custom, he, he taught them again. Some Pharisees, those are the religious leaders, came to test him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God, and here he quotes Genesis, made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Verse 13. The people were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. Rebuked means corrected. 
When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. Verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. And here Jesus quotes some of the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking back at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Verse 23 at the bottom of the page now. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions, and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. All right, go back to the beginning of the chapter. So you see there's kind of three big sections there. And the first one doesn't really make a lot of sense to you and I unless you understand a little bit about Middle Eastern culture in the first century, and in some ways even Middle Eastern culture today. So you see that when the disciples, and again, I mean, I'm sorry, not the disciples, the Pharisees, they've kind of been Jesus' opponents throughout this whole gospel, and they're trying to get him into a trap, they're trying to get him to say something that'll turn people against him, and so they ask him about divorce, and so you say, like, that's weird, but there's a big reason for it, and here's the reason. Back in the Old Testament, even though God had originally created people and founded marriage as this thing that was supposed to last a lifetime, God knew that, that people are, are messed up and, and make mistakes and, and do some dumb stuff. And so he knew that sometimes people were going to get divorced. And in Middle Eastern culture, women were primarily not viewed as full legal people, but viewed as property. And so what would happen when a man decided he didn't want to be married to a woman anymore, is he'd kind of just kick her out of the house and say, you're on your own now. And then she was destitute. She was often um, really, really shamed in that culture, and so no one would want to take her in. But because there wasn't any official legal thing that separated her from her former husband, she wasn't able to get remarried. And so what God did is said, all right, if you guys aren't going to be together anymore, you have to officially legally divorce. So this woman has the ability to go out 
and get married again so she can be taken care of. Because again, even though it's, it's not part of our culture, it's, it's a thing in that culture. In that culture, women just weren't allowed to have jobs outside of the home. And so if a woman didn't have a home that she was the, the mom and, and wife in, she had nothing and she'd be reduced to begging. And so Jesus says, it wasn't originally intended that people would get divorced, but because of the hardness of people's hearts, God brought something in to make things legally better for Jewish women who lived in the Middle East, right? It was, it was kind of a, a big deal, and it was a step forward for them, even though it's kind of an ugly subject. So at the time of Jesus, there were these two really distinct views. There were these guys who were just all about men being the best thing ever and women not being anything important, and they said, if a man wants to kick his wife out and divorce her for any reason at all, he can and should. And so you can guess how that power got abused, right? A guy would get married to someone when he was young, and then they'd both age, and when he'd find a younger, prettier thing, he'd kick out his current wife and marry her. That's how that always works, and it's horrible, right? And so there were some Jewish guys who thought that was an okay thing to do, and others who thought that it wasn't okay, and if you were going to get divorced, you had to have a huge reason. And so the Pharisees are asking Jesus about this in public because they think whatever he says, he's going to offend half the people because about half the people believe each thing. And so Jesus, in the end, does side with one of the groups, right? But he does it in a really interesting way because he quotes Genesis 1, which talks about how God made both males and females in his image. And then he really emphasizes that it's sin for both parties to break their marriage vows. And in doing so, like, that's not a big deal for us to read today. We're like, yeah, of course, both people are legally responsible. But in the time of Jesus, that's a revolutionary thing to say because what it does is it elevates women to being seen as full people who have the same rights and the same ability to, to mess stuff up as men. And that's just not how Jesus' culture saw women. All right? So there's that. Then you get to verse 13, and you get all these people who have seen Jesus bring healing and do all these miracles, and of course they want their children to have that presence of God in their lives, and so everybody's rushing their kids up to Jesus, and they're saying, hey Jesus, just like pat him on the head or something, and he'll be blessed, and it'll be good. And the disciples are like really typical people in first century Jewish culture where they don't think children are a big deal. We talked about this some last week, how our culture like really values and protects children and we do everything we can to give them the absolute best. That was not first century Middle Eastern culture at all. They saw kids as slightly less than, than full people and didn't really care about them that much and, and in some cases didn't even invest in them that much. But here Jesus is saying, not only are they valuable and worthy of my time, but he says that children have an easy time coming into the kingdom. In fact, look at, at verse 14. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant, which means he was super irritated as, at his disciples for keeping the kids away. And he said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And so in a culture that looks down on children, Jesus says, y'all have something big to learn from little kids. 
Raise your hand and tell me one way that, that kids are different than full-grown adults. And don't say, like, height or weight, like, personality-wise. Yeah. Innocent? Yeah, okay. What else? Yeah. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> but they're often, like, pretty straightforward about being guilty, which is kind of nice. They're like, yeah, I hit my sister. What up? <laughs> yeah, Ryan? Maturity. Okay, yeah. Okay. What else? Yeah. They're optimistic. They're really optimistic. They assume the best in people, don't they? Yeah. Anything else? Okay, I'll tell you the one that I think that might be locked. Oh, no, it's not locked. You're good. So one of the main differences... One of the main differences I've noticed between adults and children is this. When you're a little kid, like, like Scott said, you're optimistic, you give people the benefit of the doubt, and then as you grow up, you, you have some bad experiences and you get kind of jaded, and you lose this really big thing that you're going to need if you're going to know God. That thing is trust. Kids trust people until they get a really good reason not to. Right? They trust their parents automatically. They trust people. Even though they don't understand stuff. And that's the huge deal. When you grow up, you start, you know, your, your intellect develops and you start looking for how to understand things. And that's good. That's healthy. There's nothing wrong with it at all. But it becomes, you become kind of cynical if you get to this place where you say, I'm not going to trust anything that I don't fully understand. Guess what? When you and your intellect, no matter how smart you are, when you come up against God, you're coming up against something way too big for you to fully understand. You just are. No matter how much you know about God, you are not going to say, oh yeah, I totally get it all, right? I understand it perfectly. You have to just put your trust in it. And of course you're going to learn more about God, and of course you're going to get closer to Him. But the whole thing about a person knowing God is that they have to just let go of some of that and trust Him fully, like a little kid trusts people. Alright, now let's move on. This big thing happens starting in verse 17. So Jesus is traveling through on this journey, and a guy runs up to him and kneels down, which is a sign of huge reverence and respect, and he calls Jesus good Teacher, So he acknowledges that Jesus is an authority and that Jesus is good. And he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus has been talking all about how God gives his people eternal life. And this guy wants to know how to get in on that sweetness, right? Good teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And did you see Jesus' response? First he says, hey man, make sure you know what you're saying. God's the only one who's good. And you see how Jesus is kind of coyly saying, I'm God, and you just sort of half admitted it, but you don't get it yet. But then Jesus, in answer to his question, just does this really simple thing that any Jewish person would know. He just throws out a few of the Ten Commandments. And he says, oh yeah, you want to have eternal life with God? Keep the commandments. It's that simple. And that's where things really get interesting in this story. Because if you look at verse 20, the guy says something that you and I probably wouldn't say. So verse 20, he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. 
Now pause right there. Can you honestly look at your own life and say that you've kept every one of God's commandments since you were a tiny little kid? I can't. Maybe you're significantly better than me, but I don't, I don't think that you can say it either, right? I mean, look at a couple of the commandments. How about don't lie? Can you honestly say that you've always kept that commandment, right? Or don't steal or honor your parents all the time. Like maybe you honor them most of the time, but not all the time, right? And so Jesus is trying to get this guy to understand what he needs in order to have eternal life. So the thing Jesus does is he confronts him with what we call in the Bible the law. And he says, well, have you kept the commandments? And the guy says, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. Now, Jesus is smart and he's God in the flesh. So even though that guy believes that what he just said in verse 20 is true, Jesus knows it isn't true. Jesus knows this guy hasn't kept all the commandments. And because he's guilty of breaking God's law, he's not going to have eternal life unless there's some sort of intercession happening, unless somebody does something big about it. And so Jesus, in verse 21, tries to get the guy to understand that he actually hasn't kept the law. And look at how Jesus does it. Verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. You see what Jesus is doing? The guy thinks he's directly said that he's kept all the commandments. So Jesus tells the guy to do this thing, and the thing that he tells the guy to do is a combination of two of the greatest commandments in the Old Testament. It's one, it's the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, God is saying, you don't treat anything as important as you treat God. And Jesus knows that this guy, he's rich, and he's in charge of stuff, and he treats his wealth like it's the most important thing in his life. And so Jesus tells him to get rid of his wealth as a way of confronting it. And in saying this, he is also appealing to this other commandment, which is really simple. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is saying, hey, rich dude, you're surrounded by poor people. If you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, you should probably sell all your riches and give them to poor people who need them, people who are having a hard time day to day, even though you aren't. So you see what Jesus is doing? The guy honestly doesn't think that he's broken God's law, and so Jesus confronts him with that law to get him to realize something. What's Jesus trying to get the guy to realize? That he has broken God's law. That he needs God's forgiveness. Which is the whole reason Jesus is here in the first place. Right? Jesus came to teach. Yeah, absolutely. He came to do miracles. Absolutely. But he's been really, really clear throughout Mark. That the main number one reason he came was to die on our behalf. To take the punishment we owed because of our sin. To take it so that we could be forgiven. And so, Jesus is using the law from the Old Testament to do its job. The law isn't there to improve your life. The law is there to prove to you that you need God's forgiveness. It's there to bring you to this point of desperation where you say, Oh shoot, the creator and king of the universe laid out these really clear standards and then said the penalty for not following them was death. And I look at my life honestly and I have not followed his standards. 
I am in big trouble. That's the point of the law, to get you to that place. And so Jesus is trying to get this guy to this place. He confronts him with his idolatry, with his lack of compassion for other people. And look at the guy's response. It's so sad. It's so heartbreaking. Verse 22. But he was dismayed by this demand and went away grieving because he had many possessions. So the guy not only doesn't get it, but he holds on to the fact that his money is his idol and he holds on to the fact that he doesn't actually care about the people around him. And he just leaves. And on that horribly sad note, go to Greece.